Hello and welcome back to The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking into the world of dating and ask whether we're in the middle of a sex recession. We'll also be looking at the mysterious case of the missing horses and ask, what is the RSPCA up to taking people's horses? Finally, we'll be looking at neurodiversity and why it's such a controversial subject within the autistic community. First up, are we in the middle of a sex recession? Zoe Strimple laments in her article in this week's Spectator that dating apps and online porn have ruined romance. So, why is dating not as fun as it used to be? Are smartphones to blame or is something else at play? Joining me is Zoe Strimple and Dr. Kath Mercer, a lead researcher at one of the largest national surveys of sexual attitudes and lifestyles in the UK. So Zoe, you say in your piece that we've never had more choice, but the quality and quantity of sex seems to be going down. What exactly do you think is to blame for that? I mean, I think that it's the sort of the the, the direction of technology and sort of, you could call it late capitalism, is such that it's, it's sort of natural that we want to turn everything into a sort of question of choice and consu- so almost a consumer choice and commodify things. And digital dating has made that possible. But I think that what we're finding out in very kind of interesting and painful and sort of, yeah, I suppose just interesting ways is that when you treat the dating market literally as a market, there are all, a whole host of sort of bad effects, I think, to do with the quality of, of the bonds that you're supposed to be forging. And, you know, I've, I've actually, I did a, a master's thesis about the sort of d- the degree to which you can compare online dating to shopping. And I, I think it was sort of a bit unclear then before Tinder, but now there has been a shift. And I think that that definitely the sort of formats and the technologies combined with a certain kind of familiarity now with internet commerce is genuinely confusing and crossing, causing people to cross their wires and their brains aren't quite managing to distinguish between matches they may encounter online and, and what it is to actually be dealing with a human being and, and everything gets the sort of 2D treatment rather than rather than 3D. And Kathy, you're a, you lead Britain's National Sex Survey. I mean, does your research sort of back up what Zoe has been saying in her piece? We've certainly seen a decline in the frequency of sex and one of the hypotheses is the impact of the digital age such that people are too busy to have sex perhaps, 20, you know, 24-7 competing demands and at the same time, when it comes to meeting partners, just greater expectations because of this approach to dating and that it's another online search, essentially, with increasing numbers of filters that people can be more and more choosy and picky in terms of what they're looking for. And it's, you know, this idea of their right to be very specific about who they're looking for. And then perhaps it's no surprise that actually they might get few hits and actual fewer meetup, real life meetups, which I think then gets quite demoralising in terms of thinking about these thousands of people that are out there that are registered with these apps and yet trying to meet that person is impossible, seems to be impossible in comparison to these other online searches that we might do for a holiday destination or a hotel exactly. or, or a product through Amazon, for example. So do you think people kind of like to hide behind apps? They don't actually necessarily want to go and meet people, but they quite like messaging and perhaps keeping a bit more distance between themselves and someone else. I mean, I think that studies suggest that certainly the kind of younger end of the millennial age bracket, i.e. kind of 18 to 25-year-olds, have grown up in with their social media to the extent that they find, you know, really meeting up awkward. But 
Do people hide? I think that one of the things that defines dating is, is various interplays and dynamics of power. And I think that you people have realized now, it's, well, it's never been easier to, in, to sort of indulge in those power plays without actually having to meet up. And I think that this idea that we're so busy, that Kath was mentioning, I think it's more of an idea. Oh, we're so busy. We're so stressed. We can't possibly actually go to the effort to meet someone. It gives a sort of green light to this kind of, well, in, because I'm so busy, I'll just indulge in the sort of power play aspect of of, flirt- of courtship or, or sex um, and then save myself the bother. And I actually, I think there's actually a very funny specific reason that people perhaps are, are sort of choosing, you could say, to remain behind their screens. And that is, we are in the golden age of TV, and not just the golden age of TV, but the gold, the sort of internet. There, there's such a high opportunity cost to like going out, spending money, schlepping wherever. And I think you know, people, especially young people, are strapped for cash for various reasons. A lot of people just think, you know, I can I can get that frisson while staying in with my with my internet, my Netflix, my porn, mm, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's also this idea that we have our online self and. You know, if you're signing up, you're going to present the best picture of yourself, the best description of yourself. And then I think there may be some concern as to whether you're actually going to live up to that expectation. So why then risk that by meeting in person, you know, when you're having a bad hair day or or the conversation isn't perhaps as, as um, amazing as you made out in your profile. So actually, let's just stay behind that online profile. I think that's so true and such a feature of the sheer degree to which you know, self-curation has, has, has kind of dominated young people's And if you extend that then to sex, yeah. let alone the exactly. meetup. How do you manage all those different body parts yeah. in a such situation like sex that you've, you've perfectly kind of anatomized <laughs> And online. at the same time being mindful of this checklist of criteria that this person who's agreed to meet you has in their mind. Am I living up to that person? That, that image that person has of me. And then what does that do for our self sense of self-worth, our anxiety? And we know that anxiety is correlated with libido. So, you know, you don't actually want to have sex with this person because by now you're going to be so paranoid as to is my real self as exciting, as attractive as my online self. Exactly. So let's, let's just scrap all of that and stay digital. What are the other options? I mean, if you, if you want to not be on these apps, which yeah. presumably lots of people do, I mean, what else is there? Well, this is a really pressing question because I actually begin to survey this the landscape and think ap- apocalypse. That's where we're at. <laughs> the, because the, the very thing that used to be the sort of alternative to online dating was obviously meeting people at parties, in bars, at dinner parties. But what's happened, which is sort of unbelievably ghoulish, is that now people have become, um, especially younger people, I guess, have become so accustomed to corralling the dating world into their apps and like the real world into like work and friends that people just people won't even people can't bridge that gap between oh maybe I could actually flirt with this person in real IRL in real life because that's what I do on tinder so so that even if you do like someone and meet someone offline getting to you know takes two to tango getting that person to actually be able to kind of handle what that might look like i think is getting increasingly difficult so Absolutely. i, I do not all, know. you know the warts and all of ourselves but our real life is just too scary a prospect i think to share with and when there people. is chemistry like i don't think people have the ability to recognize it or act on it yeah, yeah. i mean do you think apps can even create chemistry I mean, my fiance and i often talk about how if we were on apps we probably wouldn't have met because mm. we would have had actually quite different interests that we would have put down I mean, do you think apps are able to overcome the fact that you know some people do just find attraction beyond 
No, yeah. and like I, in and sci-fi, whatever it is. No, and I and here I, I want actually want to put in my historical perspective that I should have said when you, in answer to your first question about what's to blame, and I think that the history of dating and the history of, of of romance is very tied in with the history of sort of how psychology and emotions and selfhood have developed, and so what there became to be this belief actually following on from sort of Myers-Briggs personality testing, that you can taxonomize every part of you and what you're looking for. And P- and that's been sustaining the dating industry since the ni- late 19th century. Well, let's say the marriage bureau of the mid-century in particular, where there's a sense of if you just say what you are and what you're looking for, somehow someone with that encapsulates all those things will come along. And, and you know, in the 70s, Dateline, the computer dating service, they would sort of, but, you know, you'd have to fill in these, these forms with all these diagrams and all these questions and then they'd feed it into the computer and the computer would spit out six matches. So I think that basically we're kind of, I think that chemistry is being murdered and has been slowly murdered by mediated matchmaking services because of this idea that if you only exert enough, you know, enough psychological categories, enough lists, enough personality testing, enough sort of expertise, then some somehow that will translate into chemistry and it absolutely does not. Yeah, there, there isn't a tick box for the connection, you know, the spark. On paper, exactly. it might not work. It and might work, context. it might not work, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if there's, I have a, I mean, what dating sites take away is this crucial ability to sort of understand the some very important information, which is the context in which you might meet someone and how they, how you can see how they are in a, in a very kind of, you know, just the word co-presence. And without that, it really is kind of, you know, you're, I think, I don't really see how people get around that actually. No. I mean, they do, but I don't see how. And I think it then puts greater pressure mm. on our, real life social networks we value those existing relationships that work and that work well to the extent i think that some people perhaps as they you know into their 40s they might just ditch the whole idea of dating apps because actually they've got a a group of people where they have that emotional connection okay there might not be the sexual connection because we're talking about friends and then there's almost this idea of a loyalty that we've come this far together if anyone could get meet someone leaves the clique then that's almost disrespectful and disloyal so and why upset the apple cart when we're connecting and that I think quite often is what people crave more than the actual section sexual connection it's that emotional connection the other part you talk about in your piece though is uh, sexual wokeness and you talk about these some of these men on these apps who um, are into ethical polyamory and you even call there's something called a radical candor can you tell us a bit about yeah that whole side of it well so this is one of the really interesting nails in the coffin of sex romance dating whatever even love maybe let's let's be dramatic and yet so basically I, I think it started in the 70s with the idea that the personal is political and interesting that interestingly that was a feminist mainly a women's liberation idea although the gay liberation front sort of you know the liberatory campaigns have, have used that since the 70s but what's happened now is you know the same climate out of which me too came is this sort of idea that that really you show your liberal credentials and you virtually you signal your virtue in how you in your sexual ethics and it's not but so often it's not actually ethics but it's sort of pretending to be ethics and the way that ethics pretends to be ethics is by basically enumerating all the ways in which you like kinky things and think that your partner if they are truly liberated like you will also like those kinky things and the funniest manifestation of that now is the rise of this term I think ethical 
polyamory or kind of ethically non-monogamous, you know, or even throuple, which is basically sort of the reinventing the 60s wheel. Like you can have you can have lots of girlfriends or boyfriends at once. And guess what? You don't have to feel that terribly old fashioned feeling of guilt. You don't have to face up to good on it. What happens when you actually cheat? No, no, no. This is all this is all under the guise of a sort of newly liberated sexual politics, which is all about diversity. You know, all those things that we have every, thrown at us all the time in everyday life about diversity, openness, acceptance, tolerance, embracing love. That is all manifested in this, I think, actually, ironically, very depressing and, and, and actually constricting world of like, yeah, like open, so-called openness. And you're talking about this 3,000 word essay that you, oh, you received. Can you just explain what, what that yeah. was about? So, so, I mean, so the thing is, now that pro- things that used to be seen to be the problem with sex, especially plaguing women, was a lack of vocabulary, a lack of language in which to really enumerate desire. The That has changed dramatically. On the upside, women have more vocabulary for saying what they want and pleasure. But the downside is that men have completely, and I think, kind of gone, sort of taken even further. And so what you end up getting is these sorts of like, these sort of endless torrents of detail about preference. And and so it's not unusual. Yes, I, you know, I encountered this this profile. Let's call him Rob. I forget what I call him in the piece, something like that. Dave. And, and you know, I sort of, it's just, but this seemed typical to me. You, you sort of look, oh, Dave, I'm this. And then suddenly you scroll down and 3,000 words later, you're getting like all the things that he's into, but that you should have to be into and underpinning it all. So so torture, um, radical candor seems it, it's, an, it's some sort of new movement where you sort of say exactly what you think is true at any given moment, I guess. It's all sort of that that kind of thing torture garden I mean you have to look these things up kitten play basically sort of like as if S&M and and these sort of preferences are sort of totally totally normal but underpinning all this I think is a really sinister and sort of judgment which for someone like me makes me quake which is if you can't appreciate respect and engage in this shocking array of preferences that used to maybe happen but were kept under wraps and you can't celebrate then you are you know, God knows what, a Tory, conservative, not progressive, not tolerant, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, that, so I'd say people are most um, articulate now, especially men, about their kinks and their sexual preferences. And that's become a substitute for articulating anything actually like substantial about personalities and interests and anything intellectual. It's an intellectually free zone. Well, it's interesting, Zoe, because you say in your piece that this other man you met said that he wanted to protect women from getting hurt, and that was paramount for him. I mean, do you think that's a new thing we're seeing since Me Too, or mm. are these sort of mm. are these men always said this? On no, the line, this, is, this well, men have always used that line to some degree. But yes, there's. I think there's a real thing. I mean, we've all seen it: the rise of allyship. You know, hashtag I'm a feminist ally. You know, a trans ally. All this stuff. People who have nothing to do with something, kind of taking it on as their thing, and I think it. This this is an but this is something that's actually really beginning to irk women. This sense that men can just sort of say, "Oh, I'm doing it because I'm a feminist," but actually, you don't have to probe very deep to see that no, you're not. You're doing it because you know it get it somehow gets you more power, gets you more kicks, something like that. But but absolutely, me too. Well, I think one of the clear, obvious first things that happened with me too were the kind of men that were deemed, you know, allies and those who were deemed 
enemies of women and and me too kind of split masculinity along those lines and and a lot of men i thought seemed came across really pathetically actually trying to sort of scuffle into the fray of being like oh i'm this you know i'm such a feminist now because you know so i think and, and but this is part of that phenomenon of of politics and cultural politics entering the bedroom like this so so the fact that this guy i encountered actually i think it was before me too got into gear properly he maybe it was in the middle but you know this this it's become a thing like as long as you say as long as you virtue signal you give your woke creds and then from a certain kind of man being a feminist and being an ally is 100 percent what that is then the idea is that women will say okay you've passed those tests you virtue signaled sufficiently for me because i'm also woke as it happens um yeah well uh, politically this guy and i just there was just no hope but um <laughs> on, on plenty of other levels as well but but i mean that sort of thing it's a lecture every dating profile is a lecture you can slap you know banged over the head like this is this is my politics this should be your politics if you are progressive in the way that you should be you will be into ethical polyamory torture gardens it's all the should 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 exactly and then the online profile then may reflect that and then there's this concern again about oh am i going to live up to this exactly you know? you're like what and about then, me i'm so boring i'm yeah, just like yeah, this exactly. vanilla boring person then like, that, nobody the anxiety that. kicks in the paranoia <laughs> yeah. and then if, why bother but also presumably quite often the person writing all this stuff doesn't live up to what they're writing absolutely absolutely it's a two-way thing so it's how you sell yourself is one thing but the reality is is what people I think are so scared of now but I think I wonder if you agree with this Kath I mean to me there's such a coldness such an emotional coldness such callousness that that underpins all of this and I just have such a feeling that we're kind of swimming around in in an ice field like yes everybody's super switched on to what they want and, and the idea that you might have needs as well needs are very well catered for but there's no the the, the, to, the tone and tenor of these interactions with these men it's sort of almost like one of hate it's, it's sort of bizarre it, it's sort of done under this heading of of, of need of gratification like oh i'll gratify your needs you'll gratify mine and we'll be this lovely progressive couple together but actually when you actually look at the feeling of it it's this it's a sort of you can yeah it's a sort well, of emotional this coldness guy it's a reading nasty. through his three thousand word essay in person yeah, you exactly. Know, it, it would just but even if happen, you message, you're hiding him. behind the online world. I mean, you exactly. can be as brutal as you well, like. Well, right. And, and so this really made me think. And I, I really think there's something to be done here on, on this hate, I think. This sort of, yeah, it's sort of a strange, cold hate, cold fury almost between the genders. I mean, I some guy on OkCupid made a reasonable approach. He was much younger than me. And then before long, it got to him saying, oh, well, I can't meet up till like two weeks from now. But and I said, well, fine. And he said, oh, but that's too long away. I want to play with you beforehand. And I sort of thought, how nasty. And so I said, well, define play. And he said, you know, clearly it's some sort of awful manipulation, which is like, we I don't even know this guy from Adam. And his answer was something like, oh, you wouldn't be into it. I thought, what an unpleasant interaction. Like, this is the opposite of what romance being nice to each other it's supposed to be about and it was so chilling yeah so i think differentiating between sex romance relationships is absolutely key thank you kath and zoe hello i'm sam leith literary editor of the spectator and i present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there from charlotte rampling to daniel dennett all the way past to michael morpurgo i very much hope you'll give us a try just search for spectator books on the itunes store up next the mystery of the vanishing horses our columnist melissa kite lives near a farm and regularly sees the horses in a field but a few weeks ago she saw them being loaded into lorries which was later described as an rspca raid 
She wondered what was going on and followed the lorries and writes in this week's magazine about what she discovered. She joins me now. Melissa, can you start by explaining to someone who perhaps doesn't know about the RSPCA how it is that they can launch a raid and take someone's animals away? Well, I'm afraid with these stories, it just involves forgetting everything you think you know about animal rescuing and pretty much starting from scratch because the law is so incredibly vague that the RSPCA can indeed launch a raid on someone's property if they have a warrant for anything. I mean, this particular warrant was very vague, just a suspicion that the animals weren't being cared for and then they can go in and basically load up all the horses. There were 123 horses on this farm. It was 100 acres, and the man was a horse dealer. You know, he made no secret of that. If these were cattle, I doubt anybody would have called it in, but it seems some locals called in that the horses were standing in mud. Well, I mean, the field wasn't any muddier than most of our fields, but the RSPCA turned up with a warrant, and for whatever reason, they still haven't told us, they loaded up all the horses into a huge amount of horse lorries were parked all up the roads. They loaded them all up, it took all day to load them. So that's not great for, for horses. And they were standing on the lorries for hours and hours before they even started to move. And then they took them to various locations, which, you know, they said, it's all fine. They're just going to these local shelters to be looked after because the conditions here aren't great. This is what they were telling local people who were reporting it on Facebook. The fact is that over the next few days, I set out to find them because I've been investigating horse seizures before and they tend to go a hell of a long way, actually. And they tend to split these large herds up and, and, and take them to remote places where I then, as a journalist, have struggled to follow the fate of the horses. I'm not against rescuing horses if they are in need of rescuing. My problem with this is that when you seize a large number of horses, you need to really have some accountability of where these horses are going. And so I have traced these horses, and I say in my piece, to a number of locations as far as eight hours away by lorry. And remember, they've been on those lorries for hours and hours already. And people are against live export and taking horses in lorries long distances like that. So I really do feel that even from that perspective a raid like this is really pretty grim from the horse's point of view. You also talk in the piece about these horses that have been rescued but have ended up being put down. I mean is that standard practice? I mean it doesn't exactly sound like the horses are any better off. Well of course we don't know yet what's happened comprehensively to the horses in this seizure. 123 were taken. We had a statement saying they had welfare concerns and they've taken them. I then rung it out of the RSPCA that, in fact, to date, seven have been put down. I asked why. Very vague was the answer. For medical reasons, I've got various documentary evidence leaked to me by concerned people in the animal welfare, sort of in the animal welfare insiders, who basically are telling me that really there was nothing desperately wrong with the horses and that basically the RSPCA have given so so little information that the problem is again as I say if there is something desperately wrong with these horses please can they tell us but they just don't tell us. And what about the owner of the horses I mean he's refused to sign these documents that would hand over the horses to the RSPCA but he's now being charged for livery how is it that the RSPCA have the power to take your animals away and then charge you money for their safekeeping. Right. 
this is another aspect that I think people struggle. In fact, when I started telling people this on Facebook, they just said this can't be true. It's absolutely true. It's a standard charge. For horses, the standard charge if the RSPCA take your horses away because they suspect that you're neglecting them, the standard charge is £13.50 a day per horse. This man was a horse dealer and like any farmer dealing in livestock, he had 123 horses. Can you imagine? £1,660 a day. He's been told this will amount to at least £750k to a million pounds by the time of any trial, which would probably be a year away. And that, you know, they haven't even charged him yet. And it's very vague about what he's done. They're going to probably, I mean, I, sh I shouldn't even say what I think they're going to charge him with because, you know, we need information from them. But let's just say that under the Animal Welfare Act, you can be charged with something as vague as failing an animal's needs. Now that is just frighteningly vague, isn't it? And it can mean anything from, I don't know, not taking a dog for a walk to they can say that these horses were standing in mud and some of them couldn't reach the hay bale or anything. I mean, it, it just can be anything if that's the way they wanted to go. One of the interesting points about your piece, I thought, was when you talk about the reality of farming and livestock and that it's often not perfectly manicured. I mean, do you think that people expect horses to sort of look perfect and when they're not, they become suspicious even when perhaps they shouldn't be? I think there's a huge problem as our countryside disappears, as people living in towns move out to the countryside and as, generally speaking, we get more touchy about animal welfare and rightly so in many ways but you know the problem is that we have to accept that if you know if you saw cows standing in a field in winter in mud nobody would have said anything and I think there's a huge misunderstanding amongst the general public who by and large now well actually horse ownership is pretty buoyant the numbers are pretty buoyant but there is a, a lot of misunderstanding I think in horse ownership nowadays because the old school people who used to own horses I mean they're you know there's a new generation coming up and there's all sorts of, you know, touchy-feely ideas. We're very anthropomorphic now about animals, especially horses. People genuinely, I think, a lot of people do believe that if a horse has mud on it, it's suffering. And that idea simply wouldn't have got any traction, would it, 50 years ago? Do you think people would be less likely to report the RSPCA if they knew that the animals might be taken away and perhaps even put down? I think if they knew the half of it, and I'm only able to reveal a tiny fraction of what I have some good evidence for, I think if people knew the half of it, they would never call them again. And that's in itself, it's a huge problem because we do need an accountable animal rescuing or animal welfare organisation which is trusted. Of course we do. And it's ridiculous to suggest anything else. I absolutely do support the idea of some accountable body who can hold animal welfare of course but the fact of the matter is I genuinely believe from looking into it as I have over five six years that the situation we have now is I do fear that there is worse cruelty going on because of misunderstandings and mismanagement happening in animal rescuing than if we didn't do large-scale rescue. And that is a terrible uh, suspicion and fear to have. But it has to be scrutinised. It has to be held accountable. At the minute, there is no one holding this charity to account apart from the Charities Commission, which isn't going to go out and, and regulate this kind of seizure, is it? We, we need some way of regulating it. And what I've always said is, 
no matter if somebody who is suspected of neglecting animals is guilty or not guilty, the animals are innocent. And if they are taken, then they must be taken to something better. And that has to be the bottom line. And finally, I mean, the man you mentioned in your piece, is he is he expecting to get the horses back? I mean, is there anything he can do to get the horses back at this stage? This is a third generation horse dealer who's incredibly tough. My goodness, he's tough. And, you know, he's living in conditions that are actually pretty difficult. His, he, the joke of it is that the horse is actually, from what I've seen, wanted for very little, whereas he is, you know, he's, he's a tough old boy living in a, a messy old farmyard. You know, the locals didn't like it. But behind the animal conditions, I think you probably find the, the people are living in worse conditions, but he made sure those horses had their hay every morning. The fact is he is being incredibly brave about all of this and I say that as I don't know what they're going to charge him with and I've no information because they won't give it me as to whether he's done it so all I can say is I've you know from what I can see he is being very brave and saying I do not want to sign my animals over because you know look at the money he's running up why would anyone who didn't care about their horses run up costs of 1660 pounds a day not to give up admit guilt and sign them to the RSPCA if he if he did not care about those horses my goodness he would give up on them and get that charge off his head thank you melissa Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA, and I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life, talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers, and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator USA on the iTunes Store. And finally, on to neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is the belief that conditions like autism and Asperger's are just a different type of brain wiring, rather than a medical diagnosis. But as Jonathan Mitchell wrote in our magazine back in January, the neurodiversity movement might prevent people with more severe forms of autism from getting the help they need. He says the movement is largely spearheaded by people with high-functioning conditions who can live their lives with relatively little disruption. Jonathan's piece created a lot of discussion, and so while it was in the magazine a few weeks ago, we thought we'd come back to it for a special discussion on this podcast. So joining me is Matt Tunstall, who has Asperger's and agrees with Jonathan Mitchell, and Laura James, who's an advocate of neurodiversity. So Laura, can you start by explaining to listeners what you see the neurodiversity movement as being? Okay, so neurodiversity to me simply means that everybody, regardless of their neurotype, should be treated equally and that everyone is is valid, that everybody should be given the very best chances in life. Matt, I mean, what do you do? You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I take the principles of neurodiversity. I, I totally agree that everybody should be given the opportunity. It doesn't matter what disability they have or where they come from in life. But I see that the problem is neurodiversity is very is it's like a blank slate, and it doesn't for me it doesn't mean very much. So we have diversity already defined within the diagnosis, you know, of different diagnoses of autism all sorts of other neurological conditions. So I see it from a a completely other perspective. But yeah, that's kind of where I sit, really. 
So Laura, I mean, I suppose the reason we're all here talking about this is because we had a piece in The Spectator by Jonathan Mitchell in which he talked about what he called the danger of neurodiversity. And he said that one of the big dangers is that it, people seem to be against the idea of curing autism. What did you think about when you read that? I think, I think it's a really complicated issue because I think often when people talk about curing autism, they're actually talking about the things that go alongside autism. So, for example, things like epilepsy, things like EDS, mast cell issues, learning disabilities, digestive problems, all sorts of things, all sorts of things like that. And when, when I hear people talking about some of the very disabling aspects of autism, and, and I have this from personal experience, often it's not what would fit in with the diagnostic criteria of what autism actually is. So I think that's. So I think it's really complicated. And one of my worries is that all you know, loads of time and effort and money goes into trying to find, you know, I don't know, the genes that cause autism, for example. Whereas that money is not going into researching quality of life for autistic people wherever they are on the spectrum. And also, it's not going into looking at why, for example, autistic people might have drug-resistant epilepsy or why they might be more likely to have EDS. And therefore, things that are profoundly disabling and terrible to live with are sort of kind of getting ignored while kind of chasing this this dream that may or may not ever materialise. Well, I just to sort of on the counter of that idea is that I think the problem with the neurodiversity sort of message is that it simplifies the the message too much because as far as I know, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's not really been any scientific discovery to say that the learning disability and other sort of things that come out of autism are not indirectly linked. So, I mean, with the learning disability, I can take that from me myself personally. And from that aspect, I think there's this very simplification of autism where the in within the neurodiversity advocacy is that they don't see severe and mild as two functioning distinctions. And I think that's very, I still think in reality, that's very clear because I think the point is, is that there are people like from me, I'm, I'm diagnosed with Asperger's and I was very, very lucky to have the sort of function to be able to understand reality, understand social skills and things like that, where what I think what Laura's talking about is more the severe end, which I think we still need the research. We still need the funding to see those things because for parents and for, you know, carers alike, it's it's a profound problem and, you know, for caring for them 24-7. Well, in Jonathan's piece, Laura, he talks about, um, he says that it's often the sort of milder people, milder uh, people with autism speaking on behalf of people with more severe autism. I mean, do, do you think that's a fair assessment of his? Um, I think there's a couple of things there. The first thing is going back to Matt's point about there having been no research done into, I, I was slightly confused by exactly what you meant. But essentially, as far as I understand it, people like Simon Baron Cohen are talking about learning disabilities and epilepsy not being part of the autism itself, being something different. So I get what you're saying about parents and carers and everybody needing research, and I'm not against research into autism at all, and I've never said that. I just think that we need to be looking at, at, at what goes at what goes alongside as well, and also not not trying to jump for a cure for something. You know, they might find a cure for autism and find that people still 
not not that I actually even believe it's possible I can't work out how it how it could happen but um but then still leaving people with drug resistant seizures still leaving people with um all of the issues that come with EDS and stuff like that so no and then uh, your other point about people speaking on behalf of other people I never really quite understand what that means so I would be really interested to hear what Matt has to say about what, of what he exactly he means about some people speaking for others well, I, I, I'll take like what Jonathan says in the magazine and in his piece is that the problem is, is that there's a growing number of people within the neurodiversity advocacy that are, let's say, I'm just trying to find the best way to describe it, is sort of, and I come back to the simplification, is that they take this sort of we rather than me aspect to autism. They claim to speak on behalf of other people. But the problem is when you look at the, the actual arguments that they're making, the big issue is is that the severe side of autism is always quite discounted in an ignorant way and and essentially is that there's a lot of language play in saying what's right to say what's not right to say um there's been all sorts of claims that you know saying with autism is is offensive rather than saying the autistic and then coming back to this whole basis of identity which is kind of the core of new neurodiversity now whether that uh, links back to the the original foundation of neurodiversity, I think it, I think it's Judy, I think, yeah. And I think people are using the neurodiversity message as a sort of a, a you know, as a, as a weapon, really. It's a little bit aggressive, but to, to say that other people outside of autism can't have a say, you know, about autism, really. And I think this is kind of where we've seen a lot of advocates also finding you know genuine researchers that have been doing it for 10 20 years just instantly saying that they're offensive for saying x y and z about autism okay so going back to that so first of all i'm always very clear whenever i speak i speak only for me I'm, i i always make that very clear and on that basis i can't speak for other people who support neurodiversity i can't speak for what they do and i think a lot of what a lot of what we're talking and a lot of what was in the piece and a lot of what you're talking about matt is what happens on twitter rather than what happens in the real world so and we all know that you know kind of people people can find anything to argue about on twitter and people can find anything to be offended about on twitter in, in a way so whereas when people actually sit down and have a proper conversation they tend to be more respectful of each other yeah, I, I, I kind of want to disagree because there's, although I agree with that to a certain degree, there have been a, quite a few advocates that are going to some of the, I won't name anything specifically, going to lectures from some of the more higher level researchers wanting to sort of say that they shouldn't be within the research arena. Um, I can't think of the guy's name, but basically I've been seeing it playing out on Twitter and I don't I don't think we can discount Twitter as not real life because you're on a public forum you have to to accept what you say it will have effects out in real life and I think this comes back to the danger that, that what the basis of neurodiversity is is that and we're coming back to the whole societal thing is is that that society plays a a sort of a problem for autism rather than um, looking at the actual causes itself and sort of saying that the whole diagnostic criteria is, you know, this whole oppressor versus, versus oppressed message. And I think this is kind of where it's rolling. And I'm seeing this 
also within the very big charities, especially within the UK anyway, where the message is now starting to get, you know, twisted, I think, especially from the National Autistic Society. And I'll quite happily say that because if you look at their latest campaign, they're trying to create this bubbly picture of autism, where in reality, it really isn't for a lot of people. Thank you, Matt and Laura. This Spectator podcast is brought to you in association with Merian Global Investors, proud sponsors of Shakespeare's Globe, together committed to providing the space to perform. For a chance to win one of 50 pairs of prize tickets to the Globe's summer season, visit merianattheglobe.com. Competition terms and conditions apply. That's it for this week. If you'd like to listen to Katie Balls talk to Jess Phillips, the MP, about Olives and her internet fame, You can find her on the latest episode of her new podcast, Women With Balls. To listen, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read more about Melissa's case with Missing Horses. There's lots of great details in that piece. And you can also hear more about why we're experiencing a sex recession. Plus, our cover piece by Ross Clark looks at how the future is finally catching up with the car industry. And don't miss out on this week's offer. We've got 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12, plus a free astronaut card holder worth £60. So if you want that, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash astronauts to get your offer. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 